And thus the reading, John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. Yes, we've been in this chapter now for several weeks. And after I did the evening Bible study from another part of the chapter, or the same part of the chapter, I should say, um, our deacon Mike uh, commented, you know, you've got five or six sermons just in this one section, and how true that is. The, uh, every chapter in the Gospel of John, in my opinion, is worthy of serious, detailed exposition and study. But here, we're talking about what happens when the Samaritans hear the message of the kingdom. We saw last time how this nameless Samaritan woman was used in the Lord's plan to spread the message of the kingdom. It is one of the great themes of the Gospel of John that Jesus is the Messiah who came to save His people from their sins. And His people are from everywhere, all kinds of people, not just well-placed, educated Hebrew scholars like Nicodemus. Even a Samaritan woman is a recipient of the grace of God. Now all of that is quite in keeping with what John said at the very beginning of this gospel message. Back in chapter 1, John forewarned his readers that Jesus, the eternal Logos, the divine logic word of God, came into the world and his own people did not receive him. But for all who did receive him, they were given the right, they were given the privilege to be reckoned as the children of God. And that was one thing among many that made, the, that made Jesus and his message totally unacceptable to the Pharisees and the other leaders of the Jews. They believed they were the only ones who could be called the children of God or the children of Abraham. And we learn here that not only are they not the children of God or the children of Abraham, but they are very people whom they considered to be the outcasts, the untouchables. They are the ones who become the true children of Abraham and thus the rightful inheritors of all the promises of God made through him and to him. This is further reinforced in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, where Jesus flat out tells these people, the kingdom of God is being taken from you and given to those who are manifesting the fruits thereof. So in this story, we have seen the progression and how those Samaritan people came to know who Jesus was and is. And as we look closer now again at this section of God's word this morning, we should be asking ourselves, who is this Jesus to me? In verse 27, Jesus' disciples were sent to go and gather some food, and they returned to find him doing something very unusual. He's talking to a Samaritan woman. Now, last week I shared with you something about the history of the mutual animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And I told you then that the Samaritans were distant cousins of the Israelites who had intermarried with pagan people. They weren't totally pagan. Uh, you know, I guess today we might compare it as the difference between Reformed Presbyterian Christians as opposed to Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, you know, as much as we disagree and believe that those groups have wrong teachings, they nevertheless are within the wider orbit of, quote, marginal Christianity. They're not Buddhists. They're not Hindus, even though they may have imported some doctrines there. I, I, that's not what this is about. The point is, the differences between the, the Jews and the Samaritans were significant, but it didn't make the Samaritans total pagans. 
They weren't polytheists, for example. And we know that the Samaritans accepted as canonical, as we would say, the first five books of the Old Testament. They considered them inspired, but they rejected the rest of it. And they substituted their own traditions. Now, of course, they weren't alone in doing that because the Jews, the Judaic people, had done the same thing. They accepted more than the five books of Moses, but of course their Talmudic traditions displaced just about everything else. I saw a video just recently, recorded in Israel, by the way, uh, of a man who was a Christian speaking to another man who was a part of a larger group of Orthodox Jews. And these people were not at all happy with the Christians being where they were there in Jerusalem. And he was having a, a, a somewhat reasoned, if not slightly heated, discussion with this Orthodox Jew. And the Orthodox Jew just flat out tells him, told him that the Torah, that is the law of God, what we call the Bible, is that it tells me that I should hate you, and I do. I hate you. Now see, what's interesting about that is what that meant, meant was that the Talmudic tradition of his Jewish leaders tells him that the Bible tells him that. Because you certainly don't get that from the books of Moses or the prophets or the writings. Now, back in the time of Jesus, Jewish men were forbidden by Pharisaic law from having any friendly contact with Samaritan women. But what made Jesus' disciples marvel at him was the fact that he was talking to any woman at all. Because, again, staying with this issue of the Talmudic tradition, the writings of the Talmud, the rabbis warned, and I'm quoting directly here, prolong not conversation with a woman, even with one's own wife, and especially not with a neighbor's wife. Hence the wise men say, he who prolongs conversation with a woman brings evil upon himself and ceases from the words of the law, and at the last inherits eternal damnation. So Jesus really is breaking with tradition. But you see, the point is, it is a so-called tradition that needed to be broken because it had no foundation whatsoever in the Word of God. But notice what the Samaritan woman did. As soon as she realized the gift that she'd been given, that is, Ionios Zoane, age-enduring life, this gift of everlasting life, she ran to the city leaving behind her water bucket to tell the men what had happened to her. So there are here, for the rest of this message, I want to to think about these two things that are a result of what's happened. Let us note well what she did, and then what she said to her fellow Samaritans. So first of all, she leaves behind the water bucket. Now, I think we can see in that, and this is why I'm saying that's worth noting, This is a symbolic action of of turning away from the old and turning to the new way. The water bucket represented the old temporary means by which a person might quench their thirst, their, their physical thirst. And let's not forget in terms of symbolism, this well is the well of Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel. The woman has turned from that to something far better. Because there is a well of living water, the wellspring of life everlasting, which is now given to her by the new Jacob, the new Israel of God, Jesus the Christ. And notice that in her turning away from this, she is turning to do something very specific. She's gone to tell others about it. And I think this is an example for all of us who have received this new life in Christ Jesus. 
Because we too ought to be about the business of sharing what Christ has done for us with others. There are people who think that for someone to become a Christian, they must be dragged off to a church or a revival service somewhere. Now let's say, as our catechism teaches, it's the hearing and the proclamation of the Word of God that is the normal means of informing and encouraging those, especially those already in the faith of Jesus. But even those who do not may well be converted by attending some service or other or hearing the word preached. But the good news of the kingdom, it seems to me at least, is most effectively spread when ordinary people simply share with their friends and co-workers and family members what Christ has done for them. Reminds me of a story of a man who... Uh, and this was some years ago in Great Britain, maybe I think back in the 1940s or 50s. He had been, he was a non-Christian and he'd been prevailed upon by a Christian friend of his to attend revival services held by a well-known revivalist preacher. And this preacher gave a tremendous salvation message. And all during the message, he exhorted and, and admonished his hearers to turn from their sins and cry out to God for deliverance. As it was, the man was leaving the great revival service just as lost and in his sins as he had entered it. But just as he got to the parking lot, he was met by another friend who had been at that service, and he invited him to go to the home of yet another man where there was a meeting of the men of the church. Well, this fellow was rather curious about what a group of churchmen would be meeting about at someone's house after already having attended a worship service. So he went along, and when he got there, he found about 25 men gathered together in a large living room. Now, the host of the meeting announced that the group was to spend time sharing with each other what the Lord had done for them in answer to prayer. But there was a condition. No one was to share anything except what had been done for them in, through prayer in the past 24 hours. Nothing prior to that time. Well, our non-Christian guest was very skeptical about how that would turn out. And as other people, as the other men sat around in silence, that man was certain that this whole program would flop because no one could think of such a thing on such a short notice. And besides, in terms of this man's idea of proper manners in public, he was of the opinion that men especially should never be asked to speak publicly about such things. It would be embarrassing to talk of such things in public. But even as this man was deciding that no one would dare speak up, one man after another began to speak. Great answers to prayer were reported by one man and then another. Sometimes two or three men began speaking at once. And there was such an eager outpouring of praises to God that the host had to ask them to raise their hands to speak with permission. The guest was stunned as this went on for almost two hours. And as the time wore on, God, by his spirit, moved upon the soul of that man and opened his blinded eyes. And the reality of new life in Christ became clear to him. And he was enabled by God's grace to believe on Christ Jesus. That's how the Holy Spirit leads people to Christ. Through our testimony and our telling others what Jesus has done for us. Because we never know how or when or upon whom the Lord will bestow his saving grace. By means of our sharing with others. Now, I bring all this up because that's what this woman did. She went straight back to her town, and she began to tell the others what Jesus had done for her. And here in verse 30, we read that the people of that city were so moved by the change in that woman 
and the sincerity of her testimony that now they go out to see Jesus. But now I want you to notice her words in verse 29. She asks, could this be the Christ? That's the second of the two things that we're going to take note of here. What this woman says. We've seen what she did. Now look at what she says. She asks if this is the Christ, the Messiah, the Taheb in the Samaritan language, the Mashiach in Hebrew. You know, in the early part of this chapter, when we first encountered Jesus at the well, he rec- she recognized him as just another Hebrew man. But then, as he begins to talk with her, her understanding begins to change. She now realizes that far from being just another man, this man is a great prophet. She relates this to the townspeople, how Jesus told her all the things she ever did. Now, that's probably just an excited way of telling those men that Jesus had supernatural insight. And this is not the first time in the order of things that we've seen Jesus exercise that gift, that ability. Back in chapter 1 at verse 48, when Jesus first met Nathanael, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And now we see that he, excuse me, that she has understood even more that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is not simply a prophet, but the Taheb, the prophet, promised of God. He is the Christ that both Jew and Samaritan had been hoping and praying for. And at this point, again, you and I would do well to ask, who is this Jesus to us? Is he just another holy man from days gone by? Is he indeed a prophet like Muhammad or Buddha? Or is he indeed to us not only the Christ, but our Christ? Now at this point in verse 31, the disciples encourage Jesus to eat something. And the Lord takes that opportunity to teach those men a lesson, another lesson, by means of analogy. Now previously he used the example of water and living water. Here he uses the example of food. He draws his nourishment, his sustenance, from doing the will of God Almighty. But notice, please, that Jesus is even more specific than that. He says that this means that he must finish the work that his Father sent him there to do. You see, Jesus came into the world to accomplish something. He came to accomplish the salvation of his people. And friends, this is where... Biblical faith, biblical Christianity differs from all the other variations because the message of Scripture is clear. Jesus came not just to make salvation a bare possibility for anybody who might make up their mind to believe in him. No, he came to accomplish, to secure the redemption and salvation of his elect people. And John has already told us who those people are. They are all those who believe in his name. They are his people. It was for them that he came to do this work. It was for them that he died. It was for them that he won salvation. And God has so ordered his plan to save this people such that you and I and the woman at the well and all followers of Jesus are to become the means by which that work is extended to all. Jesus tells the disciples that we are given the privilege of continuing this great work of sharing the message of the kingdom. Now, in verses 39 to 42, we are given an astonishing example of what can happen when someone does hear that kingdom message. You see that in verse 39, it says that many, many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus. And it was because of the testimony of a woman whom up to that point, no one would have seriously taken 
anything she said about spirituality or morality at all. She would not have been taken seriously on any of those topics. And yet it was through her that God worked to bring many, note well, many, not just a few, to faith in Christ. And the Bible tells us the Lord stayed with the Samaritans for two days. And there are really another two things here, just about that fact. First of all, that a group of Samaritans would even ask a Hebrew, an Israelite holy man, to stay with them was simply unheard of. But secondly, that Jesus would be willing to consent to the invitation and stay with them was just as remarkable. But such is the nature of the new Israel of God. Such is the expansiveness and the superiority of the new covenant. Verse 41 tells us that a result of Jesus coming, it reads, and a great number more of them came to have faith in him because of what he himself said. My guess is, and that's all it is, is speculation, that by the time Jesus and his disciples left that city, you would have had a hard time finding anyone who was not a Christian. Jesus' disciples, I'm assuming, must have been with him as he visited the Samaritans. Because among other things, that would be an important lesson for them, as they would soon be called upon by the Holy Spirit to carry the kingdom message far beyond the reaches of Palestine and Judea. And finally notice what these other Samaritan Christians told the woman at the well. Verse 42. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard him. We've heard it ourselves. They weren't being unkind to the woman by saying that. They simply are confirming the fact that as important as personal testimonies are, there's nothing that can take the place of a one-on-one personal encounter with the Christ. So I can tell you, and you can tell me, all about what Jesus means to us and what he's done for you or me. But it is up to you to me, to believe in him for ourselves and to seek him for ourselves. And notice the rest of what those new Samaritan Christians tell that woman. They indicate that like her, they too have had a progression in their understanding of who this Jesus is. He's simply not just another Hebrew prophet. He's not only the Messiah of the Jews and the Samaritans. He is, as it says in the Greek text, hosoter tu kosmu. He is the Savior of the world. Let us pray.